Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre with the second Grand Slam of the season about to kick off. And we're so happy to welcome one of our longtime recurring guests and friends of the podcast. He's covered over 100 Grand Slam events. He's on site in Paris. He's written a New York Times bestseller entitled The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. He's currently working on a Rafael Nadal book entitled The Warrior. Always thrilled to welcome Christopher Clary to the show. Chris, great to see you. Hey, Ben and Mike. Bonsoir. It's kind of late night in Paris, but I'm still jet lagging, so it feels like I don't know what time. (laughs) Well, we can't tell from looking at you. You're looking sharp, and I like the digs there. For those who can't see, you got quite the uh, Parisian a background vibe going on there. And, uh, you know, The Warrior, the name of this new book you're working on, we could call you The Warrior, I feel like, for all that you've done for tennis and covering the sport so well over the years. Congrats on a fantastic career at the New York Times, which I guess you just announced is coming to a close. So can you maybe let our listeners know, and, and for Ben and I as well, who are curious, what prompted you to close the chapter on this part of your career and and what do you have coming up next? Well, Mike, thanks for that. No, it, it's definitely a hard decision. I mean, you don't leave a place like the New York Times lately. And uh, I spent the majority of my, actually my life now at this stage, working for them or for the International Herald Tribune, which was their international uh, you know, paper for a long time. So 32 years. But I, I just, I really enjoyed writing The Master a lot. It was a, a stretch for me. And uh, you and I talked about it, you know, with Ben as well. And when it came out, I think in really has been a joyful experience and I really learned a lot about myself. And I think um, I was surprised by the success that it had, to be honest, a lot of the international success. And that really opened up some doors in terms of opportunities. And the publishers were interested in doing this book on, on Nadal with me and uh, they made a great offer and they're good people. I've worked with them before. So it kind of came down to either I stay at the times and, and keep doing what I've loved doing for a long, long time, or I try something a little bit more daring and something new and, I feel is going to stretch me a lot at this stage and take this opportunity. I mean, there are going to be many Nadal books written. There have already been quite a few. And uh, I think this is probably the right time to get to work on one and try to do a good job with it. But yeah, definitely a few restless nights and uh, a lot of gratitude. I've been very lucky to have had that job as long as I've had it. When we spoke to you about the Federer book, that was um, shortly before he decided that he wasn't able to come back to the tour and had to hang up his racket. Nadal is still, you know, fingers crossed, and his plan is to come back. He wants to have a farewell season at the very least in 2024. How does that impact how you're going to write this book? Are you hoping to wrap the writing up before his 2024 season, or are you going to include what comes next and and sort of see how things progress with him before you put a final date on that uh, for a deadline? You you know, I don't know exactly how it's going to go in terms of the production, um, but I do think that... um, this is the right time to start getting at it seriously. I think he, you know, the main body of work that he's done in his career is over now. He may have some great surprises left and some great resilience left. The odds are that he does based on his past performances and his stout heart. Um, but I just feel like he's done a lot of what he's going to do in the game and researching a book is a longer process. And I suppose if he comes back in 2024 and in thunderous fashion and ends up playing a couple more years, we will rethink it how, depending how it looks at the start of 2024. But the plan is to get the book out next year. And obviously we can revise it later on as time goes on, but it's not going to be a straight biography. I don't want to go into all the details. I don't want to give too much away and I'm still kind of working out the structure, but it's not going to be a classic biography. It's going to be something a little different, but definitely Nadal focused and, 
and uh, exploring him and, and all that he's done in his career in some fashion. So it's, it's going to be a different kind of challenge than the master was, but I think it's going to be a, hopefully a, enough of a new challenge that it'll, it'll really be fresh for me too. And it's obviously, I mean, it's fitting to be talking about Rafael Nadal right now when uh, you're on site in Paris, um, the French Open, which of course he has been the greatest champion the tournament has ever seen with 14 titles. And uh, we got into this a little bit last week, but it feels like, especially on the men's side, for the first time in a long time, there are a number of players who have a, a reasonable shot at, at a title uh, in the next two weeks with without Nadal. Um, when you look at the men's field, do, do you feel this is probably the most open it's it's been in a long time and who are sort of the the key standout names to you as as the tournament's about to get underway look i mean you got to say it is the most open in a long time because there's none at all i mean uh, that's just an incredible number 14 i mean the players themselves who've played them along the way when they even say the number <laughs> they're still sort of awed by it you can tell that um novak djokovic talking about it today and Novak Djokovic has beaten Rafa twice at the French Open and um, has had a wonderful career on clay and has been a marvelous clay court player and won the French Open twice and reached another final. But he was talking about Rafa in these terms, like when Rafa's in the tournament, you know, basically even me, you know, I, I'm sort of playing for second best, even though sometimes it goes differently. So with him out, it's a different equation for sure. Um, and yet you look at the clay court results coming in for the men there aren't that many people who've really been brilliant and done well. I mean, you got a pretty short list there. I mean, you got uh, Alcaraz who missed a couple tournaments and lost early in Rome in a surprise. You've got Holger Rune has been probably the most consistent guy in terms of week to week results. You got Medvedev who seems to have found his groove on the clay. And usually Italian opens a pretty good canary in the coal mine for what's going to happen. And then, you know, um, I guess you can't count Djokovic out. I mean, you just can't best of five grand slam, French Open record, clay court record, ability to peak at the right time. I mean, based on where he's at at this stage and, and how he's looked just physically and everything else, you can't put him at, you know, peak level by any means, but I, I'm not counting him out. So those are sort of the, the four names that would come to the fore. And then Rublev had a great Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo has been another good indicator. So, yes, there are more guys that have a shot, and I'm, I'm sure they all feel heartened in some way, even though they aren't going to be quite so clear about that, that Rafa's not in the field. But there aren't that many guys that I see winning the French. Um, I'd say five or six. And you got Sitsipas as well, who's been so close. And I'm probably forgetting somebody, but five or six guys. And is that a huge field of, of really good, good alternatives? I guess by recent standards, yes. But overall, still a pretty tight group. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Um, last year, the discussion was uh, about a very top half heavy draw when when Djokovic and Nadal clashed in a quarterfinal at a Slam, which is so unbelievably rare to see. And uh, it's it's similar in in this sense uh, this year that we have Alcaraz, Djokovic, Tsitsipas on again what seems like a very loaded top half of the draw and a more open bottom half of the field. I, I post this question on Twitter. I wonder how you feel about it. Alcaraz and Djokovic for a potential semifinal. Is that more favorable to Alcaraz to meet Djokovic before a final, or is it more favorable to Novak? That's a good question. I mean, Alcaraz sure showed us an awful lot at the U S open. I know he didn't play Djokovic there and he, he didn't play uh great champions of the past to get to the title, but he sure showed that he had a lot of resilience and staying power in long matches. A lot of them at finishing at times of night that you're not going to finish at the French unless the night session goes as super late and it's only one match than that slot. So, you know, 
I think he's ready for the big matches. I mean, he's a big court player. You can just feel it and see it. So I don't, I'm not sure I see a big edge there in some ways as fired up as he seems to get for those occasions. And you saw it, you know, for the first time at the U S open against Sissipas um, a couple of years ago, you know, maybe, maybe even the final might be even more of an advantage to Carlos because he's going to be so excited. And maybe that pressure body at, at uh, 20 years old coming into a final against Novak who will have played a whole tournament and may not have an easy time of it. You know, maybe that plays in his favor, but I want to see that match. I think we all do. And I hope it happens. That's the main thing. I want to ask you one more uh, question about your, your upcoming book, Chris. I feel like I could ask tons of questions about this because I was so intrigued and enjoyed so much your book about Roger Federer. And, and, and you know, one day I'd like to write a book too. So maybe you can share some tips with me down the road, but in terms <laughs> of a, in terms of a subject matter, it seemed like you and Roger already had a, uh, a rapport of sorts. And so I'm just curious What's your relationship like with with Rafa compared to Roger as a subject that you're going to write about? And uh, and also, what do you say to the Djokovic fans who might wonder if your third book then in this series might one day be about him? You know, to the last point, I am not even going to think about number three until I get myself started and, and partly way through number two. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I can still write my language, you know, in a coherent way. But um in terms of Rafa, I mean, I don't want to get too much into all the things that have happened because I'm going to save some of that for the book. But I, I had I did meet him quite young and I was living in Spain. I lived in Spain for eight years. And my 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 time there was basically 1996 to 2004. So I was there just as I was living there when Rafa first began to emerge. I was in Sevilla for that Davis Cup final breakthrough when he basically just burst onto the international scene. The Spaniards were already aware of what he could do, I think especially the Spanish players were aware. So I feel like I was there for the beginning of his, of his pro days. And um, I think that's definitely was a big advantage. And my Spanish then was a lot better than it is now. And I was able to do a lot of interviews with Rafa in the early years in Spanish, which was a good thing because his English wasn't you know anywhere near as good as it is now. And um, it's been really interesting to watch him become who he is. And I've said this before, if you get a chance to, you know, really, if you speak Spanish, and you understand it. And then you hear Rafa speak Spanish versus even now English. You know, it's a different sort of thing. I mean, he's got a, a lot more gravitas, um, a lot more ability to really elaborate and, and kind of lead the conversation. And I think in, in, his, in one of his native languages, I mean, he speaks a bunch. He's got Mallorca as well, um, that he speaks a dialect of, of Catalan. And so he's somebody who uh, has really grown a lot in that in that public space, much like Roger has. And I, you know, I had a I had a good view of it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to putting some of that to, to use, but for sure, Rafa has been covered so well by the Spanish press and so closely. And he's such an icon there. Roger is in Switzerland, but Spain's a bigger market, bigger language group. So it's sometimes it's been harder to get, you know, quite as close and quite as many opportunities, but I've had a good look. Well, we can't wait to see what you put together with that. And obviously it goes without saying, we're going to have you back on match point Canada to talk about that one when it's due to come out, of course, as we, we love supporting the work that you do. Um, just in the way that, that you supported us too. And we've always appreciated that as well. Um, want to turn a little bit to uh, the Canadian focus here for our listeners who are, uh, you know, interested in your take on on how they're doing. Because I think really when you look at our four big singles players, um, Felix, Dennis on the men's side, Bianca, Leila, Annie on the women's, kind of coming in cold this year to Roland Garros in terms of their clay court preparation and results there. Felix struggling with the shoulder recently too, which is a little bit concerning. How do you feel amongst the four Canadian singles players in terms of what they might be able to bring this year in Paris? Do you think any of them might be able to go on a run given the way that they've been playing of late? You know, it's tough to see a deep run based on what's happened lately, I would say. Um, 
obviously I, I, I believe Felix has got a lot of upside on clay. I mean, if you watched him play at all, uh, you can obviously see the potentials there. And when, I think when he's healthy and right and with his ability to move and, and that serves a big weapon on everything. But so, you know, I, I don't know. And, and I, I've always felt, you know, that Bianca Andreescu had a, had a great, you know, clay court game in her, the way she constructs points. I know she hasn't had the most consistent results lately and, and neither has uh, Leila Fernandez. And um, they both have, have pretty tough first rounds as well. So it's, I don't know, but I, I guess for me, if I looked at it just in terms of the base game that I see, um, I, I like, you know, Felix's game and I like Bianca's game in terms of a uh, you know, longer range, if they can get to their peaks and their, and fulfill their potential. And I, I don't know. And there's also another, Rebecca Marino has a very interesting match as well. I don't know if you guys are following that, but she's playing Deanna Schneider, who is a, a teenage Russian who's been playing, you know, college tennis in the U S and basically just dominated the NCAA team competition division one playing for North Carolina state just in the last couple of weeks was the MVP of that, even though NC state lost in the final to North Carolina, she has been playing very, very well on a hard court and her best surface is clay. And she had some success earlier in the year in Charleston when she's played a few matches on the, uh, on the pro circuit between college matches and obviously had a, had a nice little uh, qualifying run and, and gave Maria Sakari a scare at the Australian open. So that's going to be a tough one for Rebecca and Marino, I think, in the opening round of the French if, if Deanna's over her jet lag. Yeah, some some very difficult opening round matches, actually, for the Canadians. Bianca Andreescu lining up against uh, Vika Azarenka, of course. I'm glad you brought up Schneider, who who had the incredible Australian open run and and pushed Sakari to the limit in that second round match there after, after qualifying. If we look, um, I guess, deeper into the women's field, I mean you know, conceivably maybe five or six men could win the French Open title. And it's really been three names that are the standout on on the women's side, really for the better past better part of twelve months, I would argue, in Iga Spianta, Karina Sabalenka, and Elena Rybakina. Are you looking anywhere beyond those three at any other names that could potentially be hoisting the trophy in two weeks' time for the women's field? I mean, they, they deserve to be the clear favorites as a trio, I think. And I, I would almost personally, just, even though I know Sabalenka has has had some good clay court results, obviously, this year and, you know, doing well in Madrid and and, and beating Sviantec. I still feel like I don't I don't know if Madrid is, is just the best uh, indicator of Roland Garros success. There have been some carryover, but a lot of times there hasn't been. Um, so I put her just a slight notch below Rybakina and Sviantec for me. And, and Sviantec, if we were sure about her health, obviously with the leg issue that she had, that she had to withdraw in Rome, that does cast some doubts on, she needs to be at her physical best as explosive as she is, you know, to be dominant on the surface. And, and you've seen when people can handle her, her spin and kind of, you know, handle her, her power, absorb it and give it back to her, then she can sometimes crack. And so we'll see how that plays out, but they deserve to be the trio in front, but I'm, I'm very curious to watch Ons Jabeur, even though she doesn't have a lot of uh, matches in the tank and has had kind of a down season, obviously has had some injuries to deal with, and some other things as well. And so, but she's a very, you know, fine, natural clay court player. I mean, got to the final in, in Rome last year. Her game really matches up well. If she's fresh physically and, and doing well, I know the French crowd will embrace her as well. So I wouldn't call her a dark horse, but she's certainly somebody to keep an eye on. Maria Sacchari as well. Paula Bedosa was playing pretty well, but she's not playing here. So, you know, those are kind of the five I see. I'm sure you guys will tell me who I'm missing here, but I, but I do think that um, it's been great to see the three women that we talked about, Sviantek, Rybakina, and Sabalenka, you know, really step up this year, all play consistently great tennis and play each other a lot. And uh, 
and challenge each other. And that Aussie Open final between Sabalenka and Rybakina was one heck of a match. And other person I thought would be a factor, to be honest, looking at the early season results, was Barbora Krajikova, who's a former French Open champion, but really hasn't shown a lot of form in the recent tournaments. I don't know all that's going on there, but certainly that's another player I probably should mention as somebody, if she gets it right, gets her game locked in place, uh, could be very dangerous. Yeah, certainly former former champion at the French Open, and she had that unbelievable season just, just a few years ago in singles and doubles. Um you know, it's it's interesting. Like, I feel like there's so many talented names on the women's side who they're not really in form week to week, but you wouldn't be shocked if they were to get hot and make a run. Um, you know, Coco Goff hasn't really particularly had a great clay court season, uh, though she seems to be have drawn, you know, pretty, pretty favorable matchups maybe through the first week. And so maybe she gets going on Jabur as well. Of course, you know, coming back from injury hasn't really found the form, uh, but is capable of making a deep run on clay. Could this maybe be the tournament where, where we do end up with some kind of surprise winner? You also got Ostapenko. There's another one. If you're going to play her in the yeah. I mean, former champion, I'm, that's still an amazing thing to me. Having watched that court side, a lot of those matches and how the margin for error was like that, that big, but she made the shots and, you know, she, when she's on, she's just uh, unstoppable. So I might, it's hard to see her winning seven matches again in a row, but I, I wouldn't want to play her. And uh, also it's going to be according to the weather report. And it's a beautiful thing to see. I can tell you a lot of sun in the forecast in Paris the next few days. So it's going to start off early. Uh, I assume pretty fast conditions unless you're playing at night. And um, that should be good for Sviantec definitely with her, Rafa like forehand, and it's it's going to be good. Maybe good for Denis Shapovalov too, you know, with, uh, with the topspin that he can create and everything else. So we'll see. But I, it should be pretty quick conditions. So Nastapenko, big hitter that she is, you know, the ball is going to penetrate. Well, enjoy all the action over there, Chris. We know you're going to because uh, I think of all the slams, is this not the one that's closest to your heart? Am I right to to say that? Yeah, it is. My wife's French, and I, you know, this is my thirty second uh, Roland Garros. Uh, it wasn't the first one that I covered of the slams. I covered Wimbledon first, but this is the one I've covered the most. And I used to live a couple blocks behind the tournament in Boulogne, which is the neighboring suburb behind Roland Garros. So a lot of personal connections. And and my French went from non-existent to bad to acceptable over the years. So that's all been good. But I was going to mention one thing, if you guys don't mind. Yeah. Go for it. As part of my, I mean, my main thing is uh, I want to, you know, I'm becoming a full-time author, but I know I've got the daily bug in me still on occasion and I still want to write. So I have started a, a newsletter blog on Substack. It's uh, called tennis and beyond. And it's, you know, Christopher Clary.substack.com. And um, started about a week, 10 days ago, but you know, we got over a thousand subscribers and uh, it's been a nice community already. You can see getting established. Some of the readers have followed me for a long time are switching over and just to keep track. I'm not going to write daily there, but I'm going to write frequently and, and uh, I look forward to uh, anybody who wants to join us. And you know, there's also a free option. Would love to have you. But if you're feeling deep pocketed from wherever you are, I'm always up for that. But I just I think it's going to be nice to have an outlet to write uh, some things that aren't Rafa related in the next in the next year or so as well on there. Well, count us in. We'll definitely check it out. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Say hi to our good friend, Tom Tebbett, who I'm assuming is going to be over there as well this week. Um, we haven't seen him lately, but uh, but wish him well as well. And, you know, the two of you are legends of the sport for what you've done, both him here in Canada and you in the United States and abroad. So thanks for taking the time today. Look forward to having you back on the pod in the future months to hear how the writing is going. And uh, do us a favor and stop by Toronto or Montreal this summer, maybe, if you can. We'd love to see you up here in Canada, too, and, and meet face-to-face. 
I would love that. And if not this year, it's on my list for next year. And I, I saw Tom Tebbett today, by the way, and looking hale and hearty. He's here in Paris and he was here long before I was. So he's, he's the Dean. Well said, Christopher. Thanks uh, so much for joining us as always. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. There you have it, Christopher Clary, author of The Master, a New York Times bestseller book on Roger Federer. He's now writing The Warrior on Rafael Nadal and uh, spending 32 years at The New York Times and now moving on uh, to his own career, uh, continuing as an author. Mike, do you think you're going to last 32 years in this business? <laughs> I would love it if I had another 32 years to go. I mean, I started in 2008 and I've had a more modest beginning with all my other requirements here, uh, aside from tennis. But hey, look, if we could follow in the footsteps of people like Chris Clary and certainly Tom Tebbett, who's a, a national treasure. I, I like how Chris called him the dean. Um, you know, I, I hey, I take, uh, you know, 10 percent of what those two have achieved in terms of covering the sport, I think. And, and you would probably, too. And uh Gosh, I wonder if Tom Tebbett sneaks down in the seats there at Roland Garros like he does at the National Bank Open here in Toronto. I wonder if they, they have to keep an eye on him there, too, because he is a speaking of a master. He's a master of finding the best place to watch a tennis match from. Oh, probably. He's probably he's probably never paid for a tennis ticket in his life. I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Again, that's right. Yeah, I agree. Um, if we talk a little bit more about this Roland Garros field and I mentioned Carlos Alcaraz, Alcaraz Novak Djokovic on the top half, which is a potential semifinals clash, like as tough as a draw, maybe that is for both players. I look at Novak and I actually think he has a pretty reasonable road, at least to the quarterfinals before he gets challenged. Maybe for someone who's a 22 time slam champion, hasn't been in great form during the clay. This could be quite good for him if he has a sharp first week. I mean, I feel like the best of five is going to benefit him in best of three and with some of the struggles he's had lately, whether it be his elbow or whether whether it be, you know, somewhat on the mental side of things, just not having the same confidence as usual. I think in best of three, he's more susceptible. Best of five, it's going to be a little bit harder to take a guy like that out. But I look at the draw and I still think it's it's not an easy one for him. He's got a potential match against uh, Davidovich Fakina early on in the third round. That's no easy opponent for for someone to face on clay. Beyond that, maybe Roberto Batista Agu, who, again, is a gamer who's happy to go five sets if he needs to and, and often does. Um, and then beyond that, the winner between perhaps a Hachinov Rublev. Like, to me, this draw is not kind to Djokovic, that if he does make it to face Alcaraz, I just wonder how many minutes, how many hours he's going to have spent on court by that point. Yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, Rublev, Rublev did have, have his shot at Djokovic at the Australian Open. That was incredibly one-sided, but maybe Clay's is certainly a different story. And if that elbow is bothering him, he's going to be more vulnerable. If I look on like the bottom half of the draw, I, I feel like there are a handful of names who could escape through. I know you're not entirely sold on Daniil Medvedev uh, and his chances at Roland Garros, so who are you maybe navigating to who could break through in the bottom field? I mean, Holgaruna to me is I'm picking him to win it. Okay. Wow. And and that's a little bit, I don't think that's okay. a huge take. I don't think that's a hot no. take. I mean, he's definitely <laughs> one of the top five guys that's going to be mentioned here, but mm -hmm. the guy's just got so much confidence, more confidence almost than he should have at this stage of his career. And I think that's going to bode well for him. And we've seen his record against top five guys and top 10 guys. And so why not him? Uh, I mean, he could face Gael Monfils in the second round, who's going to have the crowd squarely behind them. But Monfils just doesn't have the the reps in, nor is he, you know, the same sort of player he was prior to recent injuries, unfortunately. So 
I do think it would be an entertaining match. I'm sure some of the old Mofis uh, circus act will, will come out, but I, I don't think this is vintage Mofis, which would be a much better sort of entertaining match against Runa. So I'm going with, with Holger to win the tournament. I like the fact that he's in the bottom half of the draw, which to me is a little bit more wide open. Um, and I'm not sold on Medvedev, as you just mentioned, even with his most recent win. I, I still don't think he's got the clay court pedigree to uh, necessarily be able to pull this one out. So, and then you've got other players in the bottom half, like Zverev has not been, you know, nearly as strong as he's been in the past. Kasper Ruud, although a little bit better lately, still not showing us the consistent form that we would have expected from him. So I, I like Runa in that bottom half far and, and away beyond everyone else. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see Holger Runa in the final. I know he he didn't have an amazing clay court swing whatsoever. I mean, he didn't win a title, but he actually he battled with Runa in the semis in Monte Carlo. I think this is a pretty good opportunity for Yannick Sinner, and I feel like he's kind of flying under the radar a little bit in the sense that he didn't win a title on clay, but we saw you know, his incredible run in Miami before losing to Medvedev in the finals there, beating Alcaraz in three sets in that electric semifinal, which was probably, for me, the best match of the season, I think, when those two went head-to-head. I think he's a big match player as well, and I feel like each year he's making more and more strides at the Grand Slam events, ready for a breakthrough. So I'm taking Yannick Sinner to the final from the bottom half of the draw and I'm being a little bit boring and thinking Carlos Alcaraz is is the man to beat here and to take this title. Yeah, and you know, just the fact that we're having these conversations and it's a little bit more wide open in terms of any of our previous French Open previews the last few years. I mean, Chris Clary was saying, you know, maybe five or six guys in his estimation that could truly contend. Well, that's still way more than we've had the past 15 years, right? To me, that's as wide open a Roland Garros as we've been able to have. So, I'm I'm very excited for this. And when I think back to when I was growing up and really enjoying men's tennis, yeah, you had Pete Sampras who ended up with 14 slams and Agassi had his eight slams, obviously could have had more if not for, you know, mental lapses and, and time away from tennis. But the men's game was wide open and yet it was compelling. You had a good, you know, 10 to 15 guys that were all slam winners in there from Michael Chang to Becker, Edberg as they were still hanging on, Michael Stieck, even Isabel. I mean, you had a long list. I really enjoyed the men's tour when it looked that way. And I'm not saying I haven't enjoyed what we've seen from the big three, which we'll likely never again see in either Mm -hmm. the men's or women's tour. But I'm okay with a a much wider open um, sort of men's tour where you've got at least 10 names that can potentially walk away with the title at the end. And I think at the French Open this year, despite the fact that, yeah, there's about four or five, six guys that are more heavy favorites you still got some guys in there that could do some damage. I mean, even just look at Dominic Team in the bottom half who could face off against Medvedev in the uh, round of 16, I believe. Hey, there's a guy that's got the ability to have a deep run in Paris if things start clicking for him. We've seen it before. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to really enjoy, I think, watching this French Open more so than I have in in recent years because it's going to be far less predictable than uh, than before. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. I've already circled some some first-round matches, at least, to watch. If we just touch quickly on the Canadians on the men's side, I think for Felix Ojeda-Aliassim, it's kind of a brutal draw in the first round, just because with Fabio Fanini, you never really know what version of Fanini you're going to get. I know he seems like he's on the downswing of his career, but he's someone who's had his best success on clay. He's a former top 10 player. He's won a Masters 1000 on clay even, and he seems to play up to his abilities when there's a big packed stadium. Um, is this a 
kind of a danger spot for Felix running into Fanini in the first round of action. I mean, it's certainly not a kind of draw that anyone's going to want to see on, on the other side of the, you know, the net from him in your first round match. It's not going to be an easy one, but at the same point, I mean, Fanini is what, like 36 years old. And when you look at his slam results, I mean, he has had big wins in his career. He is a capable player on clay, but you know, he's, he's never had a, a huge run. What's his best at the French open, a quarterfinal, which was yeah, back quarters. in 2000, 2011. I mean, that's a long time ago since then mm-hmm. he hasn't made it out of the third round, but one time. So, I mean, Felix is in the prime of his life here. He's 22 years old. Uh, I know it hasn't been a great clay court warm up for him I, concerning that he had to pull out of Lyon with the shoulder um, but but to me, Felix is going to take this match and in a best of five against a 36 year old opponent who's known for, you know, mental breakdowns and implosions. You got to just stay cool, stay the course. And I think Felix is going to have this one. And and beyond that, I see him getting through and, and hopefully we do get to see him and CC pass go head to head. And they've had some good ones over the years for sure. Yeah, that's that's an awesome rivalry. I'd love to see them match up. Denis Shapovalov opening his tournament against Brandon Nakashima, who actually just played very well in Lyon, making the semifinals there, whereas Shapovalov has not had the match play or success on clay, and I think he's been dealing with a knee issue, so my expectations are, are fairly limited and low for him right now going into going into this slam, at least. If we uh, you know shift over to the women's side quickly, do you have Iga as as an overwhelming favorite? Are you are you picking anybody else to take this? No, I've got her as the overwhelming favorite, and she's done it twice before. And even though she's had some real close battles with Sabalenka in in recent months, you know we also saw Sabalenka flame out in the first round against Sophia Kennan recently. So did that maybe take her confidence down a couple of notches and maybe make her doubt herself just a little bit more as she heads into this slam on on clay? So. I think Iga, who's done it twice before, is the overwhelming favorite. Uh, I'm looking forward to all the matches along the way. I think there's going to be some great ones in the women's draw. And, you know, uh, you mentioned Barbara Krejcikova earlier. She could end up there against Iga. And didn't Barbara say earlier this year that she's willing to suffer against Iga if mm-hmm. they play each other? She's willing to grind it out. So I think that would be a great match. Um, you know, some of the players who traditionally do better on the hard court, the faster surfaces, have been having a fantastic clay court swing. We're back into what we just saw from her. Um, I don't expect she'll get three walkovers en route to a Roland Garros final. That was kind of interesting how that happened recently. But, you know, Chris mentioned Ostapenko not too long ago. And my goodness, her French Open title seems like forever ago already. But she's only, what, 24 years old, 25 years old. She's someone to keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, maybe it's the homer in me a little bit. But I think Bianca or Layla Annie both have the ability if they can get through their tough opening matches to have a boost of confidence, Layla could have made the semis last year, if not for injury in the quarters against Trevis and Bianca's told us that clay is her favorite surface in the past. And, and as Chris Clary said earlier, has the game and all the tools to really be a player who could excel on a clay court uh, as well. So I, I'm not counting them out for making the second week anyways. Um, what, what do you think about our two Canadian women? Yeah, for BB, I think it's about surviving that first match. Um, it's a very difficult draw against Azarenka. I, I don't think Azarenka has been playing amazing tennis necessarily, um, but she is a seeded player. Uh, she's someone who's won Grand Slam titles in the past and is is a big match performer. So uh, I think BB needs some kind of match momentum because it was all halted when she tore those ligaments in her ankle. She'd been playing so great. 
before that injury, and that was a setback. I was amazed at how quickly she got back on the court to compete. But if you look at after Vika, if she gets through that, I mean, she might have Navarro or Kalinskaya. That feels very, very winnable. And then maybe she's, you know, facing Krychikova in a third round, which would be interesting. Um, for Leila Andy Fernandez, I, I think that first round against Magda Lynette is a bit of a coin flip, honestly. Lynette had an incredible Australian Open. Um, since then, has sort of been one win, one loss kind of thing. So for Layla, I, I think that's perfectly winnable. Hopefully she feels maybe some of that good energy that she had last season when she made the quarterfinals. And even that quarterfinal that she lost to Trevisan, you could sense from the crowd, everybody was pulling for her uh, to make that an even deeper run. So Layla also really plays up to the crowd. I, I think she performs better um, at Grand Slams as opposed to maybe smaller events. Well, we saw that in New York, obviously. We've seen that in Roland Garros. She won the junior tournament in 2019 in Roland Garros as well. So, yeah, big match player. And I think she's been putting in the reps recently. She went down to play an ITF tournament and a smaller WT tournament uh, leading into this. And and I think that's great because that shows she doesn't have too much pride. She hasn't gotten too high on her horse thinking, oh, I'm a Grand Slam finalist. I don't need to play these lower level tournaments. If she sees something that's lacking in her game, she's willing to go ahead and fix it. And, uh, and I think that bodes well for her that she's constantly willing to learn and do what it takes, even if it's not something that a typical top 20, top 30 player, you know, might, might go and do. So that shows a lot of maturity for her, despite the fact that she's only 20 years old. Uh, one last player before we sort of wrap up here on the Canadian side that we, we can't fail to mention is Canadian uh, Gabby Dabrowski in doubles, who seems every Grand Slam gives us the, the best chance of someone going deep between women's doubles and mixed doubles. And uh, her and Luisa Stefani, I've always thought, are a, a fantastic partnership that still haven't quite reached their potential together. So um, I know she's never made it past the quarters at the French Open, but, uh, I, you know, a second week for Gabby is, is almost a lock when it comes to the majors. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I circled a few popcorn matches, by the way, as we as we wrap up. Ones to watch on the men's side, first round. Hubert Hercatch against David Goffin, I think is really interesting. Former top 10 player playing uh, the excellent Polish player. Uh, Maria Sakari taking on Carolina Muhova. Sakari, uh, French upset, Open semifinalist. You think? Yeah, Muhova. Yeah, she's one. been playing very well. I think that's a serious danger spot for Sakari if she can get through it, though. Who knows? And uh, here's another interesting one. Alize Cornet against Camila Giorgi in the first round. Cornet uh, having the French crowd support. Very different game style than Camila Giorgi, who's going to try and blast her off the court. So I think that could be an interesting one as well. I'm, I'm going to watch a ton of these. The first few days of a slam are awesome. There's so many great matches and... Uh... You know, it's only a six-hour time difference for us here in Toronto, so this is far easier on the sleep schedule than the Aussie Open was to oh, kickstart yeah. 2023. This isn't going to make me walk around like a zombie for two weeks. I'll be like a functional zombie as opposed to a, a total zombie. So can't wait for it to stop. Looking forward to our uh, midweek uh, Roland Garros recap next week. Uh, our thanks again to Christopher Clary for joining us, who's... Uh, Boy, he's put in the time with us. There's been plenty of uh, uh, episodes with him through the years, and we always appreciate that. And uh, Ben, can't wait for uh, all that we have to cover over the next couple of weeks together, too. Yeah, let's get it started. You guys have been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>